best-selling fiction authors is Dan Brown. To date, his books have sold a whopping 200 million copies worldwide. The title that put Dan Brown in the upper echelon of elite writers was The Da Vinci Code, which was then turned into a blockbuster Hollywood film. Now, what drew many readers to the book was not only the page-turning plot, but also the controversial claims that the author made about Christianity and the Bible. Namely, that the deity of Christ was invented by Christians and that the Bible is untrustworthy. In fact, one of the characters in the book, Sir Teabing, speaks with skepticism when he says this, quote, The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible didn't fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History, he said, has never had a definite version of the book. Now, the Da Vinci Code is listed as a work of fiction, but yet the claims that it makes are very real. Today, the belief that the Bible cannot be trusted is widespread in the culture and growing in the church. We all know the late-night comedian Bill Maher. He loves to take his shots at the Bible. Here's what he said. Quote, to many Christians, the Bible is like a software license. Nobody actually reads it. They just scroll to the bottom and click, I agree. But there are some fanatics who really believe, like the Duck Dynasty guy, they actually believe the nonsense that's in that old book of Jewish fairy tales called the Bible. That's what the world thinks about your faith and the book that you call precious. Neil deGrasse Tyson is a acclaimed astrophysicist, and he has succeeded Carl Sagan in many ways as uh, the voice of science in the popular culture. He stated in an interview, though, that, quote, science and the Bible are irreconcilable. And to believe what the Bible says about nature means you have no concept of how the universe operates. That's a very nice way of saying that all you Christians are stupid. The cumulative result of this messaging has led to the erosion of faith within the church. You can step in many churches today, and the pastor never opens the Bible. That's sad, because if we don't believe that this book is the Word of God, then, friend, we're wasting our time. I hope you didn't come today to hear a motivational speech. I hope you didn't come today to hear the philosophies of man, or to hear me recite statistics or the great musings of the thinkers of the past. No, I came today to declare a message from God, the Word of God. But this belief has crept into the church, and in 2022, they did a survey of a 1,000 Christian pastors across seven denominations, and they revealed that only 37% have a quote-unquote biblical worldview. And that biblical worldview includes the belief that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Only 37% of pastors. No wonder our culture is in the shape that it's in. Because we have pastors who don't believe the Bible that they proclaim, and 
We have people sitting in the pews who have no reason to believe it either. If the man on the stage doesn't believe it, then why should I? Moreover, there is a growing trend among young people today who are posting their quote-unquote deconversion stories. They do this on social media. A deconversion, by the way, is the opposite of a testimony of faith. A deconversion is where people who once believed in the Bible and once called themselves Christians repudiate their faith and reportedly come out of the closet as agnostics or atheists. For example, in 2021, there's a a couple of very popular YouTubers. They call themselves Rhett and Link. You may not know who they are, but 15 million subscribers to their channel know who they are. And they did a series of programs in which they came out and declared that They were no longer Christians, they no longer believed the Bible, and they were walking away from the faith because they said the Bible can no longer be trusted. Now, you may not know who they are, your children know who they are, and they listen to these voices. So, why is it so important for us to hold up the doctrine of Scripture to understand that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, friend, because your salvation depends on it. Salvation and the message of the gospel comes from this Bible. And if this isn't the Word of God, then you don't have salvation. Now, maybe you've tried to witness to a friend before. A skeptic, a hard heart, somebody who maybe had been to church as a child but never really got into the Bible. And you come to present Christ to them and you're stumped by this question right here. Well, yeah, that's all well and good. But how can we know that we can trust the Bible? Isn't it, after all, an invention and a bunch of mythologies and moral stories and fables and so on? Well, this morning I'm going to offer you four compelling lines of evidence that show you the reliability and the uniqueness of the Bible. And I hope that you came uh, strapped in and ready to go because this is going to be like drinking water from a fire hydrant. I'm going to be sending a lot of information your way. It may be different from a normal sermon because I'm going to be filling this with a lot of information, but uh, it's not enough just to believe. We've got to know what we believe and why we believe it. We've got to be able to explain to the skeptic and the atheist and the neighbor and the hard-hearted family member why we believe what we believe. And so that's why I'm belaboring this point. Number one, how do we know that the Bible is unique and can be trusted and is the Word of God? I point to number one, the publication of the Bible. The publication of the Bible. The first attribute that sets the Bible apart is its unique composition. The theological word that we use for this is the inspiration of Scripture. We turn to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 for this. It's coming up on the screen. All Scripture, what church, is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 is a parallel to that. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, Peter's saying, look, we didn't just invent this. We didn't come up with a good story. This isn't a collection of a bunch of mythology. He says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but by men 
spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word in 2 Timothy 3.16, breathed out by God, it's literally the Greek word, theonoustos. It means wind or breath of God. That's what makes the Bible different. This isn't just man-made philosophy. This isn't just dusty history of the past. This is the God-breathed, inerrant, infallible, inspired word that you can build your life upon. We may not like what it says at times. It may make us uncomfortable. Yes, it may step on your toes, but it's the truth. And we don't conform it to our thinking. We conform ourselves to the truth of the Word of God. Now, that word inspiration, Dr. Charles Ryrie has given a great definition. He says this, Inspiration is God's superintending of human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded the words of the original autographs, His revelation to man. And then I love this last line, the Holy Spirit of God moved upon men of God to pen the Word of God. You might want to think of this in terms of a sailboat. A fisherman cannot control the movement of the boat just by steering the rudder. He has to have propulsion. What gives the boat power through the water is the wind in its sails. In a similar way, there's a synergy, there's a relationship. When the Holy Spirit guided and directed or breathed upon the Bible writers, inspiring them to move their pen on the paper. Every word of Scripture is breathed out by God, and yet every word was written by a human being that was inspired, carried along, superintended, empowered by the Spirit of God. That makes the Bible 100% man and 100% God. The author is God. The inspiration is, is God. The words are God. But it came through human authors, through kings and shepherds and Fishermen and physicians. And so just like Jesus, who is fully man and fully God, the Bible is unique. It's a blending 100% man, 100% God. And the church says, Amen. Now, you say, how do you know that? How do you know that the Bible is inspired? I mean, it's one thing for the Bible to claim it for itself. Well, all you have to do is examine the amazing continuity of the Bible across its period of writing, through geography, through language, through individual writers. The Bible is the only book on planet earth, 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, written on three different continents in three different languages. And friend, it's got one message, the ruin of man and sin and the redemption of man by Jesus Christ on an old rugged cross. Uh, you, you can't put this on the same league as the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the uh, Hindu Vedas. The Bible is not only the best book of this age, it's the best book of all time. And friend, it's transformed, outreached, outpreached, and changed more lives than any other book ever written. love the way Erwin Lutzer explains this in one of his books, this amazing unity of the Bible, how it all comes together. He says, imagine various pieces of a cathedral arriving, 
from different countries and cities converging on a central location. In fact, imagine that investigation proves that 40 different sculptors made contributions over a period of many centuries, and yet the pieces fit together to form a single magnificent structure. Would not this be proof that behind the project was a single mind? One designer and his used his workmen to sculpt a well-conceived plan. He said the Bible is that cathedral assembled by one super-intelligent architect. Can I preach for just a little bit here today, church? The Bible is not just history. It's His story. It's the greatest story ever told about the greatest man who ever lived who offers the greatest gift of love ever imaginable. Jesus is the subject. He's the star. He's the sovereign king that the Scripture portrays on every page. You say, preacher, how do you know? Because when I turn to Genesis, I see he's prophesied as the Redeemer who will come and crush the serpent's head. Then when I get to Exodus, he's the Passover lamb who's... Blood saves us from wrath and death. In the book of Numbers, he's likened to the bronze serpent that Moses holds up. Look and live. Anybody who look to the Son of Man will live. Uh, and Joshua, in the book of Joshua, he's the commander of the Lord's armies. In the book of Judges, he's the judge who will come to deliver his people from oppression. In Ruth, he's called the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's the prophesied Messiah King who will come from the lineage of David. In Psalms, he's called the good shepherd. I shall not want his rod and staff comfort me. Hey, they lead me beside the still waters. And then when I get to the book of Isaiah, I go to Isaiah 53. Oh, he's the suffering servant. By his stripes, I am healed. Then in chapter 9, the Bible says he's the virgin-born Messiah whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. When I get to the book of Daniel, I see that he's the Son of Man who's coming one day on the clouds with glory. In Jonah, he's pictured as the prophet who's gone to the nations who will die and rise again. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Then when I get to my New Testament, oh, it was concealed in the old, but now it's revealed in the new. In Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the suffering servant. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he's the ascended Lord. In the epistles, he's the chief cornerstone of the church of God. And in Revelation, he's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the resurrection, and the life, the bright morning star. He's the one with the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the publication of the Bible. There's no book like it because it tells a story unlike any other about a great... The publication of the Bible. Then I want you to see the precision of the Bible. The Bible claims that not only is it inspired, but that it is total truth. 
Bible says in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Proverbs 30 and verse 5, every word of God is pure. Finally, Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them with thy word. Thy word is truth. Now we need to understand what do we mean when we say that the Bible is inerrant. Because I know there's always a smart aleck who says, but doesn't the Bible have lies? Good question. Yes, the Bible does record lies. It records one in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent lies to Eve. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is saying that the lie is true, but that the Bible records that the lie actually happened and that the recording of it is true and honest. Inerrancy doesn't exclude variance in eyewitness accounts. From time to time you'll hear people say, well, I've read the Gospels and it's full of contradictions. Funny, those who usually say that, when you ask them to name one, they usually can't. Because they haven't actually read the Bible. They've just watched a video and parroted what they heard on it. Or they heard a parent say it or a professor. For example, I had a professor at UNC uh, when I was a freshman, Bart Ehrman. I took his intro to New Testament class. And he said that the Bible is full of contradictions. And he said, uh, well, you can see one of them in the Easter story. When they come to the tomb of Jesus, he said, Matthew reports that there was only one angel at Jesus' tomb. But when you go to John, there's two angels. He said, that's a contradiction. You can't trust the Bible. Which one is it? Is it one angel or is it two angels? Well, all you got to do is think a little bit. Apply a little bit of gray matter to the situation. After all, Matthew doesn't say that there was only one. He just mentions one. John says there's two. And friend, I've never been really good at math, but wherever there's two, there's always one. And they call these places of higher learning. I could go off on a rabbit trail there, but I won't. But I will say this, praise God, that atheistic professor didn't win. Because he wanted to convince me that this Bible wasn't true, that I should throw my brain away at the door when I go into church. But you know what? He lost. Because today I'm preaching the Bible. And today I'm seeing souls saved. And today I'm seeing life change. And I don't think any of his lectures have ever done that for anybody. Let me suggest three areas where the Bible has proven to be totally precise. First off, I want you to see the Bible is scientifically reliable. Now, the Bible isn't a science textbook, but when it does report on scientific matters, it reports truthfully. Since 1929, a vast majority of scientists adhere to what we know as the Big Bang model of the universe, which says that the universe came into existence at a moment of time, space, and matter that exploded into being out of nothingness. There was nothing, and then there was something. They tell us that time, space, and matter are codependent, which means you have to have them all together at once. You can't have matter without space for where would you put it. And you can't have matter without time for when would you put it. All three came into being at once. Are you following with me? Now, Thousands of years before we ever launched Hubble Telescope, the Bible 
declared the beginning of the universe. Hundreds and thousands of years before Einstein postulated his theories of relativity, the Bible described the very model of the universe that the scientists ascribe to today. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's all right there. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's the unmoved mover, created, that's energy. Heavens, that's space. Earth, that's matter. It's time, space, matter. It's all there. Genesis 1, 1. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens are made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts, let all the earth fear the Lord, for He spoke and it came to be, and He commanded it and stood firm. Friend, I don't have a problem with the miracles of the Bible. Some people say, I can't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It was a spiritual resurrection, some of the liberal Christians say. I can't believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great big fish. I can't believe that Balaam had a conversation with a donkey. Friend, I don't have any trouble with that because I've been to the first verse of the first book of the Bible where it says that God created everything out of nothing. There's no greater miracle than that. If God can do that, then everything that follows is child's play. Hebrews 11 verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Ten times in Genesis 1 he said, Let there be. And so what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What is that? We call them atoms today. Way before the electron microscope, the Bible is already hitting on these creation themes. It's scientifically reliable. I love what Robert Jastrow said in his book, God and the Astronomers. He said, quote, For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there sitting for centuries. No doubt reading Genesis 1-1. Who are you going to trust? The theories of fallible men or the sinless Son of God who is the only one that was there to witness the moment of creation? I'm going with the Bible, friend. Call me stupid. Call me narrow-minded. Call me foolish. The Bible's not only scientifically accurate, it's historically accurate or historically reliable. Let me give you just one example. In the Gospels, we read about a cowardly Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. He cowed to the demands of the bloodthirsty mob and had Jesus crucified. In fact, we all know what his most infamous act was. Matthew 27, 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, that's Pilate. For centuries, skeptical historians doubted that Pilate was even a real person. Because the only sources that recorded anything about him was the New Testament and Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian. And they threw all that out and they say, you can't trust it. But you know what? All that started to change as archaeology, as a discipline, grew. And they started digging over in the Holy Land. Do you know what they've discovered over there? It's amazing. It's like every day is a treasure trove coming out of the ground. 
1961, they were excavating a place called Caesarea Maritima. The archaeologist, Tonia Frovra, discovered a tablet with the name, listen to the name, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judah. It became known as the Pilate Stone. And it's the first recorded instance of Pilate outside of the Bible. And archaeologists discovered that the place where they found it was a second palace where Pilate stayed when he was not holed up in the opulent palace in Jerusalem. Then, just a few years ago, in 2018, the liberal New York Times, they reported that a seal ring was found in Jerusalem that bared the name of Pontius Pilate. This was literally a ring that was wore by either one of his servants or one of his assistants or by Pilate himself, and it had his royal insignia on it so that when they stamped it into wax, it, it put his authenticating mark on it. Archaeologists say they believe that the copper alloy ring was either worn by Pilate or by one of his administrators used to give official authority to letters. Now, I could, I could name for you hundreds, and I could bore you to death this morning with hundreds of archaeological discoveries that have confirmed the Bible. Listen to what Dr. Nelson Gleck said. He's a respected biblical archaeologist. He said, quote, No archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Sources of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical description has often led to amazing discoveries. You know what that last part means? It means that archaeologists have now found that the Bible is so trustworthy that all that they need to do is read it, study the geography, go to those locations and start digging. And oh my gosh, they start to find things. Why? Because this is real. Real people, real places. It actually happened. And the evidence is in the ground. So if you're an agnostic or a skeptic today, you gotta, you're, you're living on a house built by cards. Because it's, it's scientifically reliable, it's historically reliable. And then, friend, oh, I couldn't wait to preach on this. It's prophetically reliable. Prophetically reliable. Do you know that this is the ultimate trump card that sets the Bible apart from every other source out there? In fact, scholars have counted and figured that in Jesus' first coming alone, He fulfilled 332 specific prophecies, 30 of which became a reality in the last 24 hours of His life. For instance, born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, spoken 700 years before Jesus. Go back to that other slide. His death was prophesied, Daniel 9 and verse 26. That he would be virgin born, Isaiah 7, 14. That he would be a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. That he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That his hands and feet would be pierced in Psalm 22. Written a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. That his side would be pierced according to Zechariah 12. That lots would be cast for his garments. That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. How do you engineer your life to fulfill all of this? You can't unless, unless you're the divine son of God who's stepping out of eternity and coming into time. And then you can choose where you're born. Then you can choose what family you're born in. Then you can fulfill biblical prophecy. 
mathematicians have calculated, and they say that the chance, listen to this, of one man meeting all these requirements by happenstance is astronomically impossible. Look at this. Jesus fulfilled 332 specific prophecies. The probability of fulfilling all those by chance, listen, is one chance in 8.4 times 10 to the 97th power. That's an 8 and a 4 followed by 97 zeros. Friend, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I mean, come on. Come, let us reason together, thus says the Lord. I mean, there's got to be a point where you come to it and say, all right, I admit it's true. I may not like it, but I have to admit that it's true. And if it's true, then, friend, it has consequences on my life. If Jesus really did get up out of the ground after dying, that means he's God. And if he's God, I better not be playing games. But let's go back to this probability. That's one chance, 8.4, followed by 97 zeros. Let's put that figure into perspective. You go out, you buy a Powerball today, your chances of winning the Powerball, one in 750 million. How do you like them chances? The odds of scoring, we got March Madness coming. The odds of scoring a perfect bracket during March Madness is one Chance in 9.2 quintillion. That's a 9 and a 2 followed by 18 zeros. How do you like those chances? So let's put this number in perspective. Scientists tell us that there are only 10 to the 80th power total atoms in the whole universe. What does that mean? That means that you have a better chance of picking an astronaut, shooting him off into space somewhere, having him select one single atom, paint it red, and then send another astronaut out into that cosmos blindfolded and say, find that one atom. You've got a better chance of doing that than one man fulfilling all these prophecies. It's unbelievable. It's the wonder of the Word of God. And I get to preach it every Sunday. I love my job. Amen. Now, here's what I know. Because Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies in His first coming, right down to the Nats Whisker Brothers stand, that means every prophecy about His second coming, you better take it to the bank, brother, sister. You better believe it with all that's within you. He's coming back again. He fulfilled it all the first time. He's going to fulfill every jot and tittle concerning His second coming. And friend, I don't know. I get excited, but it might be today. Hey, the sky could break. The trumpet could blow, the angel could cry and friend we might be up, up and away going to see Jesus, so friend you better know where you stand with him, because he's not just a little baby in a manger anymore he's not gentle Jesus he's coming back as king and lord and righteous to rule with a rod of iron he's God, he's man he's king forevermore so the Bible is precise. Then we see number three. I'll spend less time on this, the preservation of the Bible. You know, the Bible is the most hated book in all of history. 
Why, it's getting down to the point where I could take this book, open to Romans 1, go stand on a street corner in downtown Asheville, and they'll tar and feather me. You know why? That's hate speech. You can't call people sinners. Well, hey, let me remind you, I didn't write this. The Bible is the most hated book in history, but yet it still endures. The Bible has survived the test of time. It's outlived all of its critics. It's risen to bury all of its pallbearers. Isaiah 40 and verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Bernard Ram said this, Quote, a thousand times over the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut out on the tombstone and committed and read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. That's what happens when you have a God who defies death. I think about the old French philosopher Voltaire, the old skeptic who claimed that within a century of his death, the Bible and Christianity would pass away with the sands of time and become an antiquated relic. How stupid. Voltaire died in 1778, and his statement played a cruel trick on him, for you know what happened to Voltaire's legacy? Only 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society came in. They purchased his estate. They set up headquarters in his basement. And they used his own printing press to print copies of the Bible and distribute it all across the world. Only my God. The anvil of God's Word has worn out the toughest hammers of the skeptics. So go ahead, Bart Ehrman. Go ahead, Voltaire, go ahead, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Elon Musk, and all the other skeptics of the world. Get your biggest, baddest hammer out, because God's going to wear it down. You'll turn to dust, and His Word will go on forever. Amen? The preservation of the Bible, the publication of the Bible, the precision of of the Bible, y'all might be getting a little excited because it's looking like I might end a little bit early today. If you stop saying amen, I wouldn't preach so hard. Number four today, the power of the Bible. Isn't it good to be in God's house? Isn't it good to know we've got answers? Man, I'm handing you a bunch of scud missiles this morning that you can take out into your arsenal and use. Amen. The power of the Bible. Look what Psalm 19 and verse 7 says. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Oh, I've been, I've been excited to preach this part right here. The final reason we know that the Bible is the Word of God is because within it is the supernatural, life-changing power of the Gospel. There's no other book that's ever done more to bring more hope and salvation to weary souls like the Bible. It's outlived, outloved, outreached, and outranked all other books combined and put together. When you read the Bible, friend, it reads you. That's why it's different. You read the Bible and sometime, oh, it'll encourage you, it'll bless you, it'll lift you up into the heights of glory. Sometimes you'll read it 
and it'll make you feel lower than a snake's belly. You'll be so heartbroken over conviction. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit of God who inspired the Word that speaks to the deepest need in the deepest recesses of your soul. You ever read something over and over and over again and then it never clicks and then one day the light bulb comes on and all of a sudden you understand the truth for the first time? Why is that? Because the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, Brother Clifford. It's able to divide the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. Friend, it gets down into the brass tacks of life. It speaks to your soul. It's there at the bedside when you're overcome by depression. It's there when there's no hope in your life and you need a word from God. God. It's there, friend, when you feel like giving up and throwing in the towel. A word of God can come and lift you up on the wings of eagles. It's there, sinner. Oh, yes, it's condemning you and showing you where you're wrong, but it's also pointing to a great Savior and a glorious end that can be yours if you repent and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the power of the Bible. I read the Bible, and the Bible reads me. And for some people, they can't handle it. But, oh, friend, for those who are hungry and thirsty for the truth, open up, dive in, and drink deeply of the Word of God. Some books impart information, but the Bible gives transformation. Amen. I read this, and I don't just get knowledge. I don't get, just get wisdom, but it changes me. Makes me more like Jesus and less like my rotten self. It shows me things to come. And what God's already done way before I was ever born. Some old saint put this in the flyleaf of their Bible. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. Its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's a traveler's map. It's a pilgrim's staff. It's a pilot's compass. It's a soldier's sword and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored. Heaven is open. The gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. The Holy Spirit, its author, and the glory of God, its ultimate end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. I wish I wrote that good. But praise God. The power of the Word this is what's so awesome about the Word of God. I don't have to be spectacular. I don't have to have it all together. I don't have to have all the answers. Why? Because this book is enough. This Word is sufficient. I don't have to use gimmicks or manufacture something this word right here says it'll go out and it'll never return void. It'll accomplish the thing for which I send it to do. When can the church get back to the Bible and just believe the Bible is the Word of God? I don't need all this extra stuff. I have the very Word of God. 
Oh, friend, it can break the hardest heart. It can bring sinners under conviction. It can speak to the secrets of the heart. And it can demolish the arguments of the skeptic. I've preached that Bible and I've seen grown men come under the heaviest weight of conviction and they turn into crying babies at the altar. You tell me! It's not in me. It's the power of the Word of God. I've seen discouraged saints who wanted to give up find the next step and take a running spell and say, Hallelujah! God spoke to me today. I've seen altars full with, with people crying out for God in the midst of their help and He's met them. I've seen God raise up dead people in dead marriages and praise God. I've seen Him raise up a dead church before. And look at what God did all through His Word. Oh, I don't have to be great. I don't have to be spectacular or compelling. Now, I don't want to bore you to tears. But all I have to do stay true to this and let's build it God's way by God's word Alexander Duff was the first missionary of the church of Scotland he was young 23 years old bright innovative all that stuff he's on his way to India in 1829 with his new wife when he was shipwrecked the most serious wreck occurred when his ship, the Lady Holland, was within a few miles of India. 10 o'clock p.m. Alexander Duff was half undressed when a shock and a shudder ran through the vessel. He rushed to the deck where the captain met him with terrifying words. She's gone. She's gone down. The ship split apart, but a portion clung precariously to a reef. Through the night, the passengers huddled in terror in the surviving portion, expecting that they may die at any moment. But they were saved the next day. All their clothes and all their valuables and their possessions were lost, including Alexander Duff's Bible, which he was going to take to India to preach the good news to those people. Later, few days he was standing on the shore looking sadly toward that broken reef and that broken half of a ship he questioned his life he questioned his call he said Lord I came here thing for you and look at what's happened then as the shore lapped against the sand he looked down and something touched his foot it was his waterlogged Bible his family lost every scrap of clothing, every earthly belonging, and the only thing that came ashore was Alexander Duff's Bible. He was filled with such joy that he took it as a sign from the Lord that this one book alone was worth all the cargo in that ship. He assembled his fellow survivors, opened up his waterlogged Bible, and read Psalm 107. And then using that same Bible, he began to teach a class 
in India with a little group of boys who met with him under a palm tree. And within a week, the class had grown to 300. And soon it became a school and a church. And it educated not just the young, but the old. And people from all over India came seeking Alexander Duff. For they had heard that there was a book from God that washed ashore and came to his feet. And they said, we must hear the word of God. Only God. Stacy's coming, and I think our other musicians are coming. As we sing today, can we stand? I don't know how this message may have spoken to you today, but if you need to respond, maybe you need Christ today. Maybe you've been a skeptic and a hard heart, and God's been.